Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. <laughs> you saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, folks. That is what we did here at Theology Matters. Glad you guys could join us again for another evening. We've got a good lineup for you guys. We're going to be uh, talking with Dr. Marcy Davis, who's the head of Providence Classical School. We'll learn about that in just a moment. 
Uh, before we get into that, though, if you've not liked our uh, stuff on Facebook, you can go to Theology Matters with the Palouse at Facebook. And uh, on there, you'll find all of our shows we've done for about the past three years. We've uh, hosted several debates on the show. That's kind of been one of the things that people love the most, I think, about the show. Uh, we've done shows with Roman Catholics and Protestants, uh, atheists and uh, Christians. We've also uh, done Mormonism and Orthodox Christianity. So if you go to our Facebook page, you'll find all of our uh, shows that we have done there. Uh, we've been promoting this on Facebook uh, for the last uh, month or so, but this August we really are going to focus on intelligent design and kind of contrast that with uh, evolution, with naturalism, atheism, etc., and just kind of look at some of the scientific evidence as well as the uh, how philosophy would <clears throat> also uh, in a, interact with science. Next week, we're going to be having Dr. Jonathan Sarfati from Creation Ministries International on. He has a doctorate in chemistry. Uh, and he's written, his book, Refuting Evolution, is the best-selling creationist book of all time, with over half a million copies sold. And it's actually a response to the National uh, Academy of Sciences, which had put a book out, uh, really trying to instruct teachers how to deal with, with students who had questions about evolution. And so Dr. Sarfati takes on the National Academy of Sciences. And then in this follow-up book, Refuting Evolution 2, uh, he goes in depth with some of the uh, shows PBS and Scientific American had put out, uh, really slandering uh, creationist and intelligent design. It really does a good job setting the record straight. So you don't want to miss that show. Uh, August 20th, we're going to have uh, a couple of big guests. We'll have Ken Samples from Reasons to Believe will be with us for the first hour as we look at the relationship between philosophy and science. Dr. Samples has a has a doctorate in science. Uh, and then from 7 to 8, we'll have Jay Warner Wallace on uh, on his new book, God's Crime Scene. That's a, it's probably the hottest book out right now if you're a Christian apologist. Uh, he's a very in-demand uh, speaker. He's just an incredible man. So we'll be doing that show. And then the 27th, we will round up the month by having uh, Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute on, as well as Stephen Meyer. He's probably the best-known uh, ID theorist in the world right now. We'll be just discussing their new book, uh, Debating Darwin's Doubt, which is... Uh, Really, it's a work. He first did his book, uh, Darwin's Doubt, went out to the Amazon bestseller, had a lot of critics, and debating Darwin's Doubt is basically a response to the critics. And there's several uh, several chapters in that book, so we'll be going in-depth with that. So join us uh, the rest of this month because we're going to really be diving, diving into science in the Bible. So now let me go ahead and, and I'll bring on our... Uh, first guest, uh, Dr. Marcy Davis. She is the head administrator of the new classical private school, uh, Providence Classical School in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Uh, she's going to instruct and oversee the mathematics program. Dr. Davis is the wife of senior pastor Scott Davis of Northside Baptist Church in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Uh, she was a college mathematics professor for 18 years. 
Dr. Davis then began teaching high school mathematics. Uh, Dr. Davis holds the following degrees, a BS in mathematics from Campbell University, MA in mathematics from the University of Louisville, MS in mathematics from the University of Kentucky, uh, looks like a degree in education and curriculum and instruction from the University of Kentucky. So more degrees than a thermometer, as you can <laughs> see. Dr. Davis, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, we are definitely excited to uh, to have you on. I know my pastor, uh, Dave Keene, and your husband are good friends, and we kind of yes, do a lot of ministry in the same community, don't we? They do. They're very like-minded, and we appreciate, we appreciate Dave and, and uh, his leadership at Park Baptist. Absolutely. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, yourself. How did you, um, how did you be, become a Christian? Did you grow up in a Christian home, or was it later in life? Well, I was blessed to grow up in a Christian home. Um, I had a little bit different experience uh, than a lot of children. I was very young. Um, but but there was no one physically around me when I um, made a decision to follow Christ. Um, God has always spoken to me uh, very clearly through His His natural revelation. I, I love uh, His creation, and uh, the, you were just talking about intelligent design being a focus for um, for the month of August. And uh, you know, I've always been able to to look at that and just know there has to be an intelligent designer behind this. There has to be a God who created this world, created me. Um, and as a young child, just sitting outside and enjoying nature right outside my home, I just thought, well, you know, this God who created the entire universe and who created me, you know, he he's the one who deserves my life, and and I I need to give it to him. So, um, was saved at a young age and, and baptized, and uh, just very blessed to grow up with Christian parents who. Um, who had me uh, in in the church whenever it was open, and I'm very grateful to to have a, a testimony um, like that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious. I, you know, I see you went to a lot of different universities. Was there ever a time where you were having uh, struggles with with your faith, as far as uh, some of the objections maybe that uh, college can bring to young adults? No, thankfully, um, uh, just did not have a lot of doubts. I mean, I certainly had some times where I chose my own path versus following him, but, you know, I never, uh, never once uh, questioned the the validity of, of scripture and, and his call on my life. There were just some times where I, I chose to, to ignore um, or, or go in, in the opposite direction. Um, but uh, no, I've just always felt that, um, you know, the most important thing that we can do in life is, is, to do whatever it is he's calling us to do, and we have to be willing to, to sacrifice whatever that might be. And um, I, I'm, I'm grateful that you know the Holy Spirit never let me wander too far. That He always uh, <laughs> convicted and, and pursued and, and brought me back around for, for the times where I, I was was not following the way I should. Um, but no, I've, I've never had had serious questions or doubts. And again, I just think um, I think God's just blessed me with with a, a faith uh, that that can see uh, the big picture. Um, that's how my mind works. Uh, I have a very logical brain <laughs> as a math, math person. That, that side of my brain is, um, is, is always at work, and uh, it just there's just too much evidence, um, both in God's Word and uh, in his natural revelation to us, uh, to doubt that, that he is who he says he is and deserves my, my obedience. 
That's good. Very, very good. Uh, how did you get interested in, in mathematics? Was it just something you kind of discovered as you were going through grade school that uh, you liked it and you were good at it, or how did you how did you that, end up? Uh, well, I have my father to thank for that. Uh, he always made it fun. When we, when we were driving around from place to place, he would just uh, kind of call out math facts or give me a number to start with and then have me square it and add two and multiply by five and just kind of see where, doing all of that in my, in, you know, just mentally uh, and then giving me the answer. And he, he just made it fun and it was something I was always just good at. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting how God works even when we're not when we're not thinking clearly about about the future, I just kind of went into math, uh, you know, in college because that's what I was always good at. Um, and you know, who who knew at the time that God had had the plans uh, for me that that He does? I never imagined I would be starting a, a Christian school. Um, I had kind of thought I I would be always teaching college uh, at the college level, um, but uh, He had other plans, and it's just neat to always look back and see. Uh, how he was preparing me even for what he's called me to right now. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that. Um, tell us about the, the school, your vision, how did it come about? <clears throat> well, uh, my husband and I met in uh, at Campbell University and uh, went out to uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, shortly after we got married, and uh, we're blessed to spend 17 years there. My husband graduated from the seminary, was went on staff as as the director of admissions and um, just blessed to be around some incredible Christian thinkers um, there and apologists and um, just such a formative time in in our lives. And we began our family there and had four amazing kids uh, in in Louisville. And uh, my husband eventually left the seminary and went on staff as an associate pastor uh, uh, at our our church that he had been the college pastor at uh, previously. And uh, uh, he also mentored several of the, you know, being in a, in a seminary town, he was a mentor to um, to many of the, the younger uh, gentlemen coming up and studying at the seminary. And uh, one particular uh, gentleman uh, who he, he mentored, he had given a resume to to help him build his own resume. Well, uh, this guy got called to Rock Hill for a youth pastor position. And uh, uh, unbeknownst to us, the, the, the pastor resigned uh, shortly after uh, he arrived, and unbeknownst to us, uh, he he submitted my husband's resume uh, for for the, the senior pastor position. And about four four or five months into it, we get a phone call. I uh, just want you to know we uh, we've got it down to a couple folks, and and you know, you're you're one of them. So that began our uh, our our journey to Rock Hill. And uh, as during our time in, in Louisville, I was uh, teaching uh, at the University of Louisville and University of Kentucky, and then most recently at uh, Boyce College, which is the undergraduate college of, uh, of Southern Seminary. And um, our kids were blessed to be in um, a classical Christian school there. Um, classical education is, is much more prevalent in, in that area. There were lots of options to choose from for, to, to find a classical education. Um, and as we began looking at Rock Hill and feeling God was calling us here um, absolutely clearly to, to Northside Baptist, uh, that's been such a blessing, such a, a great home um, for us. Uh, but as we looked around, there was just nothing uh, similar to, um, to the, the schooling opportunities that our, our children had in Louisville. And so uh, 
you know, we still felt God calling us. We, we made the move, and um, I began teaching at the high school um, at a local Christian school. And um, uh, through that experience, uh, met um, an incredible friend and, and Latin teacher uh, who shared a, a passion for classical education um, that, that I have as well. And uh, after a few years, the, the two of us uh, just uh, kind of felt like God was, was calling us to uh, to try something new and to to provide uh, a type of education that that is just not available currently in our town. Um, and uh, Judy Heinzel is our our Latin uh, teacher extraordinaire. She is amazing and uh, certainly could not have done this without her knowledge. Latin is an extremely important uh, component of classical education. Um, but also Jeannie Williams. Um, is a, a dear friend and one who uh, was involved in classical education with her own children. And the three of us uh, just came together and, and, uh, and began casting a vision for what has become Providence Classical School that's opening in less than a month. Wonderful. Uh, talk to us a little bit. What is classical uh, education? Kind of uh, distinguish between what the normal public school would do as to what is the what is the distinction of classical education for those who well, may not know? <clears throat> well, first, um, I I don't want to um, I, I I don't want to delineate public versus private. It's really more of a modern versus classical debate. Okay. Um, that's kind of the, the differences because you know whether you're at a public school or a private school, um, modern education looks very different. From classical education, um, you know, modern education uh, is is constantly swinging with the latest winds of change. Um, we, you know, as you could see, and 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 from from top down, things like uh, No Child Left Behind, and then Common Core, and it's constantly changing. Um, classical education was how everyone was educated until about 150 years ago, when when John Dewey came along and introduced modern education. Um, to us, uh, you know, in, in part, a, a lot of that was was a rejection of um, of just you know a biblical worldview, um, and modern education has continued to just uh, to, to shift and change, and um, and, and classical education uh, has been around for a very very long time. Uh, it has seen a resurgence uh, since the the 1990s, and uh, one of the main differences is just uh, just how it uh, is, is based on the developmental uh, phases and, and stages uh, that children go through uh, of the, the trivium, which is a three-stage learning process. Um, and, and interestingly enough, even modern developmental theory backs up uh, the validity of, of, of the classical methodology. Um, the trivium begins with the grammar stage. Uh, grammar, we tend to think just English and diagramming sentences and things like that, but the grammar is just the basic facts of any subject. And uh, the grammar stage is where uh, where children start, where they just learn the basic facts. There's a lot of memorization because they're good at that at that age. Um, we actually start our foreign languages. We start Latin um, at those at those younger ages. Uh, third grade is when our, our formal Latin uh, program begins. Um, if you've ever been around children in a foreign culture, you know American children who go over maybe with missionary parents, they pick up the language way way more quickly than, than the adults do. It's because their minds are geared that way. Um, so we spend the time laying the foundation, whether it's math or, you know, or actual English grammar or even beginning the Latin, um, for, for the kids to just get those basic facts down. And then they move on to uh, the logic stage, um, which is uh, where they are, uh, are, are learning how to un- 
kind of piece together the whys behind all of those uh, those facts that they have mastered. Uh, it, it matches perfectly with that that age. If you have a, a preteen, you know they love they love to argue, and the logic phase teaches them how to do it well, um, and how to uh, to to really understand uh, you know the, the causes and the reasoning behind those facts that they've mastered. And then finally, the third phase of the trivium is the rhetoric stage. Uh, where, uh, and that would be the older upper grades, um, and that is where they learn how to, to effectively communicate, to express and defend their ideas, um, and uh, that those those three stages taken together and in that order. That's that's one thing that's so important um, because it just matches their their developmental growth. Um, those three things uh, really set a classical education apart um, from from the modern education that we see. Okay, that's that's good. Now this. This may sound like a dumb question. I'm just not familiar with it. But uh, so, would those in the high school level would they still be doing math and science, or absolutely, they pretty much... absolutely, no, def- definitely, oh, okay. um, yes. You will see all of the same, you know, uh, studies. AP Calculus is my favorite class to teach. You know, Lord willing, we will have that as we add a grade each year. We're going K through 8 this first year, um, but we hope to add, you know, ninth sense all the way through 12th in the coming years. Um, but, no, you'll see biology and chemistry and, and all of the, the typical things that you, you would see um, in any other, you know, schooling program. But it's, it's more just the way that it's taught and the methodology um, behind it. So, you know, at, the, at that stage, it, it, here, here's an example. Uh, in the grammar years, uh, the children might just memorize the periodic table. And they might not have a clue really what those, you know, different symbols mean and, and how, how everything fits together. And then during the logic phase, they start to understand, you know, why certain elements are grouped the way they are. Uh, and then, you know, when, it, when they're finally in the rhetoric stage and able to, to study full-blown chemistry, they have those, those, that, found, that foundation that they've been building on and are able to, um, you know, really back up and defend the things that they are studying in chemistry versus just, you know, regurgitating facts. Um, you know, that's, that's another big thing uh, with, with the difference between classical education and modern education is, um, you know, modern education tends, tends to teach students what to think, where classical education teaches them how to think. Um, and that's an important mm. distinction. That's good. Let me ask you for uh, for Christians. What is the benefit of uh, having a Christian school? What is uh, what are some of the incentives or reasons that uh, that a parent should send them to a Christian school over a uh, public school? Well, um, you know, we've just been talking about the benefits of classical methodology, and you can certainly. Um, attend a classical school that's not Christian. There is uh, mm-hmm. a rather large one in Charlotte um, whose tuition is about five times what ours is. Um, but when you, when you marry the classical methodology with a, 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 a biblical foundation and, and a biblical worldview, I, I think you just get a top-notch education. I don't think there's anything better out there. Um, and, of course, you know, I mean, academically speaking, um, you know, there are – uh, just tons of pros to this classical approach, and, and it's proven. I mean, from SAT, ACT scores, uh, the Latin just really helps kids to get a, a good foundation uh, on our on our language. Um, 60% of, of the English language is, is made up of Latin, and most of the rest comes from Greek, which we also study at our school. 
Um, so academically speaking, you know, that approach is, is uh, really second to none. Um, but, you know, the, the culture of a Christian school is so important. And uh, I think that's really important that, that you um, get, a, get a feel for what the culture of a school is. Just because it has the word Christian in front of it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, the culture is, is what you would want for your children. And I think, um, I think that comes top down and you have to, uh, to really get to know uh, the other families and, and know who you're partnering with. You know, for us, there are different models of Christian schools. There are those that are missional and that they seek to uh, allow ed- everybody and, and anybody in because they want to reach them for the gospel. And that is a very noble model. That's not the model that we have chosen. Um, we are covenantal in our model in that our desire is to partner with like-minded families, um, to, to train up our, our, our children to love the Lord with their hearts, souls, and their minds. Um, and so, you know, that's an important distinction as you're looking at Christian schools, um, you know, which one of those models kind of resonates with you. Um, but, uh, you know, for us, just, just to be around uh, like-minded families, um, I hear a lot of folks say, um, you know, especially in the South uh, with, with public school um, options, it being an option that, well, you know, all my, all my kids' teachers are, are Christians and, and that kind of thing, and, and that is great, you know, and that definitely can, you know, can be an option for some folks. But I would just challenge them to, to think about their, their children's classmates and the peers and, and that kind of influence because that influence is, is as strong or stronger than, than that of the teachers. And so by, by being at, at a Christian school like ours where you know, we do require a pastor recommendation form, and we do require both, you know, both parents to, to come sit down with us and, and have an interview and make sure that we're on the same page biblically and, uh, and, and philosophically with, with uh, our, our you know, methodology of education. Um, we require that so that we know that, you know, the, the families that are coming, of course, all the children aren't going to be Christians yet. We, we, we recognize that. That's, that's part of our job is, is to, to, to train them up. Um, but to know that the families that you are, you are being surrounded with um, will encourage and support what you are trying to do in your own family, that's an important thing to look for as you're considering a Christian school. Okay, and let me, we'll, we'll end with this question. Uh, I know there's going to be those that uh, may be wondering, uh, does sending your kid to to a school like this, does it hurt their chances of getting into college? Uh, how does that work? Does it hurt their chances? Yeah. Is that what um, you said? Are they, yes, yep. Some people are going to think if they do a private school instead of public school, maybe that might um, affect their ability to get into a good college or scholarships. Uh, how, do, how, well, how do you respond to that? I w- I would I would I would respond if you head over to our website, which is ProvidenceClassicalRockHill.org. Uh, we have uh, a tab uh, that just says Why Classical, and if you, if you click on that tab, you'll see some some great quotes from um, from, from some excellent thinkers of, of our day. Uh, but you'll also see the numbers. Uh, we have a, a graphic that that shows uh, the SAT ACT scores uh, of of students in classical Christian schools versus just averages of, of, of the nation. And it's impressive. Um, there is a significant, significant difference. Um, so, you know, hurting? No, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> if anything, it will, it will, it will be a, a tremendous benefit. Um, there's all kinds of research that shows, especially that Latin 
um, you know, is a is a key component to to helping increase scores on on SAT ACT scores. And and my personal background and passion is is mathematics, so uh, you know, I am just as committed to to that side um, of of education at, at Providence. Well, I'm really, really excited about this for the school and for the city of Rock Hill and uh, really, really appreciate you guys. Uh, definitely think this is, uh, you know, God has uh, really put this on your hearts and I think it's going to change a lot of people's lives for the better and uh, we'll just Thank definitely be, be praying for you. Where's, um, give us your website or, or any other information okay. after we get a hold of you again if, if uh, those are wanting to get a hold of you. Sure. Um, our website is ProvidenceClassicalRockHill.org. Uh, you can email us with questions at info at PCSRH.org. Um, I, I do just want to say quickly, kind of our, our uh, emphasis is, is excellent academics, but affordable tuition. Our tuition is a, about half of what most classical schools uh, are in the area and a, a third to a fourth of what they are up in Charlotte. Um, so, you know, we are really committed to, to, to making Christian uh, education more affordable to families in our area. So um, if you check out our website, we've got applications, we've got our tuition schedule, uh, you'll see our curriculum, um, as well as our faculty. God has brought us just some absolutely amazing faculty. We have, uh, a, you know, for, for your show in particular, people who might be interested, Dr. Richard Tompkins, um, who is a, a noted uh, a speaker at Apologetics seminars in the U.S. and all over the world. Um, he, is, he is our Christian studies teacher for all of our students' grades three through eight. Um, so, uh, again, we're just very blessed, and, and we know God is in this, and, and he's, he's, he's bringing just the right families and, uh, and faculty to us. And for anybody interested, we are, we're still enrolling, um, and we would love to give you a tour of our facilities. Uh, we're on Cherry Road. 1168 Cherry Road is, is our address, so very centrally located in Rock Hill. Um, but we would love to talk to any families who, who might be interested. You guys are on uh, Facebook. Is that, a, is that right? As well as, I don't know if you have we Twitter are, or not. But. We, are on, <clears throat> we are on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, and uh, if you wanted to reach us uh, by phone, uh, our, our number is 803-900-9582. All right. Thank you, Dr. Davis. It's uh, been a joy. I'd, I'd love to uh, interview your um Dr. What is it? Tom Tompkins is that his? Dr. Tompkins. Maybe, mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe we can we can get him on next week and uh, that would be and, great. Uh, interview yeah, him. That would be great. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And thank Absolutely. you for what you do as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. God bless you. Same here. All right, folks, and that's Miss uh, Dr. Davis. So be sure to check out. The website, we will put up some links to the show or uh, on our webpage there uh, for those who are interested. And uh, really appreciate her coming on. So right now we're going to go ahead and take a break, and we will be right back after this. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. One minute apologist. If you had one minute Apologia. to be able to unpack for the audience, we interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. Dr. Brown, is Jesus Christ the Messiah of Isaiah 53? Oh, absolutely. Isaiah 53 is, is a key, perhaps the key, Messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, if you try to interpret it with reference to Israel or the righteous remnant within Israel, it breaks down. 
But when you recognize that beginning in 5213 through 5312, it first speaks of the Messiah's great exaltation, but then it says that, that he'll suffer and be terribly disfigured. And as the text goes on, what we learn is that his own people, Israel, didn't recognize him. He was suffering for their sins, and yet they thought he was suffering for his own sins. And then they come to the revelation. It was our sins that he bore. It was our, our guilt that he was carrying, and by his wounds were healed. So, so it paints the whole picture of the Messiah's exaltation, but only following his suffering, his rejection by his own people, and yet ultimately their eyes opened to receive him as the Messiah of Israel and thus the Savior of the world. to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Over three chapters, the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. All right, folks, thank you for joining us again. We are moving into the second part of our segment there. I'm in a little bit of technical difficulties, but um, we were supposed to have Dr. Weil on the show with us. He's been on before, and uh, he's uh, a brilliant guy, a PhD in I guess, nuclear chemistry. He's written several books, and um, I think there's, there must have been a miscommunication uh, but anyway, uh, I'm not going to be able to have him on the show today. Uh, and that's okay. We will reschedule. We'll get him back on. Um, but kind of keeping with the theme of God and science, I wanted to uh, look at look at a few different uh, a few different things here as we 
you know, we're moving back with the with the school year getting ready to come back upon us. When that happens, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of parents get worried as their kids are going off to school and they're going to be in science class, and sometimes they hear things uh, that seem to contradict what the Bible says. And so, I want us just to take a few minutes just to look at God and science and whether the two are reasonable, whether they can be married, whether it has to be one or the other. Because in a society that we live in today, a lot of people think, uh, you know, if you are, if you believe that God exists, if you believe the Bible, then somehow that is antithetical to science and therefore you must give up science. So let's do this. I want to play this clip here from Richard Dawkins. This is at a uh, speech he is giving on uh, secular humanism, and uh, I think it's at the, one of the reason rallies. And in it, you hear him encouraging his fellow atheists to mock religious believers, mock it, scorn them, you know, make them feel stupid, belittle them. And uh, I want to play that for you guys so you can hear it and just, so you can kind of see what we are up against. whatever reason we are having some real technical difficulties today I'm not sure what the problem is uh, but in this in this clip what you'll hear is Dawkins encouraging people to mock those who believe that God exists and uh, just, you know just a few points on this we would say uh, if you get uh, Dr. Turek and Geisler's book I don't have enough faith to be an atheist they have uh, several chapters on this, and they, they talk about how science really depends mainly on philosophy, things like causation, reason, information, laws of logic, uh, laws of science, you know, uniformity. These things are philosophical uh, in nature in that they can't, they're not something that they can be proved, right? For example, how do you prove uh, the law of logic? It's not a material component. You kind of have to assume the laws of logic in order to even do science. Things like causation, that's really what the scientific method is built off of. Well, it's not something you can prove. You rely on the laws of causality. You assume them in order to do science. Same things with the uniformity of nature, right? We assume that the laws of science are going to be uh, tomorrow or today the same way they're going to be tomorrow and etc. And therefore, we're able to, you know, send men to the moon because we're expecting, uh, you know, if we send a certain amount of, uh, you know, the engine such and such of thrust to overcompensate uh, gravity, that gravity is going to be the same. It's not going to just radically change. And so in our culture, really what we see is this dominant view of uh, what is sometimes called scientism, the idea that unless you can... Uh, touch it, taste it, uh, smell it, etc. Then it's really not uh, something that we can know. We don't have any real way to know it for sure. And we want to challenge those ideas because I think it's just bad science and it's both it's bad philosophy. 
And so what I want to do is I did a talk um, a while back here. Let me see if I can bring it up. And it was at a uh, conference I did probably let's see last fall. And if I can bring it up, that would be great. And we can kind of go through that a little bit. But it's dealing with a, a reasonable faith, right? A reasonable faith. Is Christianity a reasonable faith? Uh, is, it, is it something that uh, goes against science and goes against reason? Or is it something that we have good reason to believe uh, is logical, it's consistent, it, it's, it's, it goes with what we see in the natural world. For example, we see life coming from life. We see um, material coming from material. We don't see things pop into existence, for example, out of nothing, right? We assume again, that the laws of logic and the laws of nature are going to be consistent. But what we see in nature, I would argue also, uh, certainly goes with what we see uh, laid out in the scriptures. For example, we see that uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, if, if that's true, uh, then we should see evidence to support that. And uh, with the discovery of Big Bang cosmology, we're really able to know that, yes, the universe did uh, come into existence. Now, granted, there's you know, a big debate on whether or not uh, Christians should accept Big Bang cosmology and, and that. Uh, it's, a, it's a separate question. Really what we're, we're dealing with here is uh, did the universe begin to exist, right? Is it something that just um, popped into existence from nothing? Uh, is the universe eternal? These are, these are things we have to, to look at. I think as believers, what we can do is we can say when the universe popped into existence, Christians are going to differ on that. Christians can debate that. But the fact that the universe did pop into existence uh, is something that I think we need to stand together in. And if we're going to be uh, having different guests on this particular uh, month, some of them differ. Some of them are going to hold to a view of um, age of the universe that's billions of years old. Others are going to believe that the universe uh, was created recently, uh, six to 10,000 years ago. So I just want to say, you know, that as believers, we can differ on those type of issues. But what we need to stand together on is the fact that God did create. And... Uh, you know, they bring up other issues on theistic evolution and stuff like that, and I think that's definitely another dividing point where we need to uh, search the scriptures, uh, but also look at what the scientific uh, evidence and information is. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. I'm just I'm having some technical difficulties. And so if you can stay with us, that would be great. And we will be right, uh, right back. Many people are under the mistaken impression that people from different racial backgrounds have big differences in their DNA instructions. But this is not the case. 
The entire human race has a remarkably low level of genetic variety. Some biologists have remarked that if you sequence the DNA of two humans on opposite sides of the globe, their DNA would show less variation than that of two chimpanzees on the same mountain in Africa. These discoveries have profound implications. Since the human race has low genetic variety, this means it must have originated fairly recently. Racial groups have not, therefore, evolved independently over long periods of time. These discoveries are consistent with the Bible's version of history, whereby the human population originated from two parents only thousands of years ago, and that the people groups have originated since then. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy. It was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because Uh, The world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics, who have had great ministries in winning people to Christ, who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said, I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So... The uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results. Uh, Good philosophy has good results. You can't know error without studying truth. But you can't answer error without studying philosophy. Because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, i got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, "Uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. i got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error. All right, folks, we are... Back again, just having some terrible uh, problems here with our technology, but uh, we are back. And what I'd like to do is spend a little time uh, looking over some of uh, Frank Turek's uh, material on I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And uh, it's it's one of the best books uh, out, in my opinion. I think it's about the the strongest for what it is, you know, it's it's not a it's not meant to be a exhaustive uh resource, for example, on apologetics, but for what it is and what it covers, I think it's one of the best uh resources we have out. And so the book really starts out looking at four main things. First of all, what is truth? Uh second of all, does God exist? 
or I should say the first one is, does truth exist? Uh, and then does God exist? Do, do uh, miracles exist? Or are miracles possible? And is the New Testament reliable? So the reason that we need to know about truth is because uh, if truth doesn't exist, and there's no such thing as absolute truth, then the, the question of whether God exists or not really becomes irrelevant. But see, on either side of the equation, if God exists, it is of the utmost importance. If God does not exist, well, then obviously it's really not important uh, at all, and we just live how we want to live. It's going to affect our ethics. It's going to affect our, even our view of science. Is there purpose? Is there meaning in life? And so what we're going to do is start off by looking at truth. What is truth? Well, they start talking about uh, the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction is the law of logic. And it really helps us discover what is false. So opposite ideas cannot both be true at the same time in the same sense. So, for example, if one person says the earth is round, and the other person says, no, the earth is, is not round, well, they cannot both be true, right? Either the earth is round or the earth is not round. But it cannot be, be true that both statements are true. So, uh, for example, Oxford professor John, John Lennox, who's written God's Undertaker, has science buried God, and the other Oxford professor, Richard Dawkins, who's written books like The God Delusion, um, what's that, Climbing Mountain Probable, The Blind Watchmaker, he says God does not exist. In fact, he would say, if you believe God exists, you are deluded. All right, so regardless of what position you believe, is true, one thing we know for sure, both can't be true because both are making opposite truth claims. Dr. Lennox says God exists. Professor Dawkins says God does not exist. Again, based on the logical, rational, orderly universe that we live in, we know both cannot be true at the same time. And so it just so happens, we would say Dr. Lennox is right on this. Law of non-contradiction is really undeniable, right? Even those who deny it have to use it. Even those who deny it have to use it. So, for example, the great medieval philosopher Avancini says, anyone who denies the law of non-contradiction should be beaten and burned until he admits that to be beaten is not the same as not to be beaten. And to be burned is not the same as not to be burned. See, folks, all truth is absolute. Uh, something that is true is true for all persons at all times in all places. That's just the nature of truth. Truth is absolute. We live in a culture today that says, no, truth's not absolute. You determine your own truth. I think a great example of this is the Planned Parenthood videos that have come out. How many times have I seen women saying regarding the issue of abortion and men saying it too, that, uh, well, for me, life doesn't begin until, you know, it takes its first breath. Or life doesn't begin for me until brain waves. Well, folks, uh, you know, the, the scientific evidence demonstrates life begins at conception. That's just basic biology. But if that's true, that's not just true for, for me. It is true for all people. 
Because all truth is absolute for all persons, at all times, in all places. So you're going to have some objections to this. Some people are going to say uh, there's no such thing as truth. Now, what I love about uh, Guys Learn Turk's book is they really go through this tactic they call the roadrunner tactic. And what the roadrunner tactic does is it exposes uh, it's what's called a self-referentially incoherent statement. It, it is a, um, I'm trying to think of the, of the term, it's, it's self-refuting, right? So, for example, someone says to you, you're sitting in your college class, and your professor says to you, there is no such thing as truth. Or he might say, you can't know the truth, or that all truth is relative, or it's true for you, but not for me, or... No one has the truth. How many times have we heard this? There's no such thing as truth, or we can't know the truth, or all truth is relative. That's true for you, but not for me. No one has the truth. No one can know the truth. Well, this little, this little, uh, it's not a trick. It's just applying the laws of logic to the statement is wonderful because it really exposes that they're self-refuting. So when someone says, for example, you ought not judge, and we hear this all day, all day long, we hear you ought not judge, we're going to show you exactly how to answer these questions. You apply the claim to itself. Apply the claim to itself. So let's look at an example of this. Someone says, I can't speak a word of English. Well, we would probably respond with, uh, didn't need to say that in English. Right, if you can't speak a word of English, then to speak in English would be to refute his statement. And in the book, they call this the roadrunner tactic because the person making the claim has no ground to stand on. So let's try the roadrunner tactic to our college professor that says, there's no such thing as truth. What would we say? Is that true? Is that statement true? Because if there's no such thing as truth, then that would have to mean we should discount that statement that there's no such thing as truth. But if we discount the statement that there's no such thing as truth, then that must mean that there is truth, which would refute the statement. So when people say things such as there is no such thing as truth, you just ask them, is that true? You apply the claim to itself. Let's look at another one here. Uh, there is no such thing as absolute truth. We hear this all the time, folks, all the time. There's no such thing as absolute truth. I remember going to the pagan festival. Uh, this is what they themselves call it. It happens in uh, Belmont, North Carolina. And as we went, you had numerous idols set up. It was a pagan festival with real uh, witches and Wiccans and high priests, etc. Me and my wife went out there with a team of other uh, seminary students to do some evangelism. And as we were, as we were doing this, um, we would encounter the same kind of objections over and over. They would say things like, um, well, for me, God is such and such, the wind, the air, the trees, etc. For you, maybe God is personal or something like the, you know, the God of the Bible. But there's no such thing as absolute truth. We can't really know one way or another. And so 
in their mind, they really thought what they think about God determines truth. Let me just say this, folks. Our faith does not change anything about the existence of God. Mormons can have faith that their God exists, but that doesn't mean that their God does exist. Same thing with Muslims. Same thing with Jehovah's Witnesses. Same thing with Christians. Just because we believe and have faith that God exists does not mean, therefore, God exists. Our faith does not change anything about the ontological status or nature of God. So when someone says there's no such thing as absolute truth, we need to hit them with applying a claim to itself, and we should ask them, are you absolutely sure? If there's no such thing as absolute truth, then why are you making an absolute statement? See, if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then that statement itself would not be an absolute, could not be an absolute truth claim, which would then throw the, the statement into doubt. How about this one? It's true for you, but not for me. We run into this all the time. It's true for you that abortion's wrong, but uh, it's true for me that it's not wrong. Well, folks, that is just, uh, it, it's irrational. It is absolutely irrational. Say you go to your bank account, you have uh, $300 in there, and you say to the bank teller, I would like to take uh, $100 out. And the bank teller says, well, it's true for you that you have $100 in there, but it's not true for me. You only have $50 in there. Well, no, we would, add, we would say, well, no, we, let, let's look at the records. Let's look at an objective piece of evidence uh, to decipher who's right, you or me. But what we're not going to say is, uh, yeah, you know, that's uh, true for you, but not for me. You know, the cop pulls you over while you're speeding. So that caught you going 65 and a 30, and you say, yeah, that's true for you, but not for me. No, of course not. He's going to get a ticket, and you'll end up in jail. So when someone says something like, uh, true for you, but not for me, you just ask him, well, is that true for everybody? Because if that's true for everybody, then it's not just true for you, but not for me. How about this one? There is no truth in anything but science. There is no truth in anything but science. The world we're living in today, folks, really seems to, a lot of people affirm this in America, that if you can't touch it, taste it, see it, smell it, uh, run it through the scientific method, then it is not true. And there is no such thing as truth uh, outside of running it through the scientific method. This is uh, a view known as scientism, meaning that science is the arbitrator of all truth. But, of course, think about this, folks. There's, there's a lot of things that don't fit into the category of science. What do you do with historical truths? For example, did Jesus rise from the dead? That's not a scientific question. That's not a question we can run through the scientific method. That's a historical question. Those are issues that's a different category. In logic, that would be called, called a category error or a category mistake. It would be the same as trying to weigh a chicken with a yardstick, as Greg Kokel says. See, so science is good when it's used in its proper categories and applied to things that deal with science. But when you're trying to apply science, uh, try to make things that are not in the scientific method 
fall into, uh, you know, scientific testing, then how in the world uh, do you expect to have clear results? You're just not. So when someone says there's no such, there's no truth in anything that's science, well, the, the question should be asked, is that a scientific truth? See, if there's no truth in anything but science, then that means that statement would have to be something I could run through the scientific method. But it's not. To say there is no, no truth in anything but science is a philosophical claim. It's not a scientific one. And so when the teacher stands up in front of the students and, and tries to say this kind of stuff, that there, you know, no such thing as you can't know anything outside of science, apply the claim to itself. Do the roadrunner track, roadrunner tactic. Uh, is that a scientific truth? You hear this all the time. Immanuel Kant uh, was famous for arguing that you can't know the real world. The real world is always changing. We're seeing it um, through our senses. We can't really know what the world is really like. And then you would just ask, how do you know that about the real world? How do you know that we can't know the real world? You'd have to know something about the real world in order to know we can't know it. This is the problem for agnostics, for hard agnosticism. When hard agnostics claim you, you, you can't know whether God exists, not that, uh, you know, you have the soft agnostic that says, you know, maybe God exists. I just don't have the evidence that God exists, therefore I don't believe that he does. The hard agnostic, or someone, someone would say the arnria agnostic, would say you can't even know if God exists. You can't know that. That's not even a question you can ask. Well, that's the same type of tactic you would run here. How do you know that you can't know anything about God? You would have to know something about God, which is that he couldn't be known in order to even make the claim. So it, it actually would, would refute itself. It's a self-refuting claim. How about this? I think this is on... Uh, Trying to think of the, the, the ads that always say this question everything. I, I think it might be um, Xbox or something like that. But you hear this claim: you should doubt everything. You should doubt everything. Well, using the roadrunner tactic and applying the statement to itself. Well, what would we say? Should I doubt that? Should I doubt that statement? If we should doubt everything, should we doubt the statement that we should doubt everything? See, the statement is self-refuting, friends. Uh, one of our personal favorites here. You ought not judge. Who are you to judge? You Christians, you're so judgmental. Saying that homosexuality is a sin. Saying that abortion is wrong. Oh, saying that Muslims or others who don't believe in Jesus are going to hell. That's wrong for you to judge. Well, what would the self referentially incoherent statement be there, you just ask him, isn't that a judgment? To say that I'm wrong for speaking out against abortion is a judgment. So you're judging me and saying that it's wrong for me to speak out. Uh, if I say homosexuality is a sin or homosexuality is not good for society and you're telling me uh, I shouldn't say that or I shouldn't speak out, well, you're judging. You're, you're judging, so you're doing the same thing. It's a judgment. So 
even those who, for example, would, when we say Jesus is the only way to heaven, is what is taught in the scriptures, uh, you're going to be called a bigot. You're going to be said, uh, you know, you're you're a bigot. You are narrow-minded. You're judging others. You're inclusive. Well, and in a, in a sense, we are inclusive. But see, truth divides. Truth separates from error. So even those who would say, uh, you're wrong to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's, that's, that's just wrong. Uh, all paths lead to God. All paths lead to God. Well, that itself is uh, the same as making a judgment because it's claiming that Christianity is not the only way. So even that itself is exclusive. See, you can't get around it, folks. Jesus, uh, truth divides. Truth divides. Truth separates from error. Here's a clip. I want to want to play this quick clip dealing with this. Uh, Oprah is talking to some people in in the audience, and uh, Jesus comes up, and this idea of being exclusive and who are you to judge uh, really comes through here. Let's see if hopefully if our technical difficulties have gone away, we can play this clip. A panel has been discussing the spirituality and the forces of God, but I also believe that there are two forces that are here with us, that we do have our, our, our God that we can depend on, but there is also a power of darkness that we do need to be aware of. And, and that's you, where the choice is. Do you begin. believe that, uh, that you can choose between one or the other? Most, most absolutely, definitely. Yes. Now, now Marianne uh, Williams says in her book, Return to Love, that we're always walking in the direction of one or the other, that all of your actions in life, either you're moving toward the darkness or you're moving toward the light. Right. She calls it fear and love. There's this wonderful book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn, which talks, that, which, which is, Anyway, it's a gorilla talking, but anyway. Uh, it talks about one of the points it brings out is one of the mistakes that human beings make is believing that there is only one way to live and that we don't accept that there are diverse ways of being in the world, that there are millions of ways to be a then human how do you being. And, God? and many ways, no, but many paths to what you call God. That and her path crazy. might be something else, and when she gets there, she might call it the light. But her loving and her kindness and her generosity brings her, if it brings her to the same point that it brings you, it doesn't matter whether she called it God along the way or not. And I guess the danger that could be on that, I mean, it, it sounds great on the onset, but if you really look at both sides, I there could couldn't possibly be just one way. What, what about you? What about Jesus? only one way. There is one way and only one way, and there that is possibly, through Jesus. There couldn't possibly be with because a million people in the world. There couldn't possibly be. Because you say, you intellectualize it and say there isn't. If no. you don't believe that, you're all buying into the lie. But that means you're right. You think, you think that if you, if you are somewhere on the planet, if you're somewhere on the planet and you never hear the name of Jesus, you never hear the name of Jesus, but yet you live with a loving heart, you lived as Jesus would have had you to live, you lived for the same purpose that Jesus came to the planet to teach us all, but you are in some remote part of the earth and you never heard the name of Jesus. You cannot get to heaven, you think? And that is covered in the scriptures, too. People are talked about Truly. that. God knows the heart. Does God care about your heart or God care about if you call his son Jesus? Well, you know... Oprah, God, Jesus cannot come back until that gospel is preached in the four corners of this earth. So, you know, figure it out. Okay. 
Okay, I can't get into a religious argument with you. It's not religion. I can't get into a religious argument with you, John. All right, and there you have it. Yeah, I'm not judge. For you to say that Jesus is the only way. What if, you know, for this person it's uh, Buddha and etc. So, folks, uh, we just have to remember, truth is absolute. It's it's absolute. It's true for all time and all peoples and all places. If Jesus rose from the dead, that is not just true for me. That is true for all people. And so when you hear this claim, you ought not judge. Apply the claim to itself. Isn't that a judgment? Now, we've established that truth exists. Let's look at the truth about truth. Contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not possible. Let me say that again. Contrary beliefs are possible, but contrary truths are not possible. Number two, you can believe everything is true, but everything can't be true. You can believe everything is true, but everything cannot be true. Either we exist or we don't exist. Both can't be true. Either... Uh, a female is pregnant or she is not pregnant at the same time in the same sense. Both cannot be true. Number three, objective truth can be denied without being affirmed. So what do we mean by objective truth? We mean that which is independent of society, culture, of whether anybody else believes it or not. One of the things that I noticed as I was talking with people at the Pagan Festival we would say, uh, well, you know, at one time, people believed that the earth was flat. And they would say, yes, that was true for them. But if you have to ask the question, what is truth? Don't we have to know what truth is before we can start uh, kind of going over about uh, what it is or what it's not? We have to know what truth is. And truth is that which corresponds to reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And so objective truth cannot be denied without being affirmed. It just simply cannot. To say things like, there is no such thing as truth, that is, that is a truth claim. And the only way that that can be true, that is to, if, you, if you apply the claim to itself, it buckles down like a house of cards. So that's that's the importance of knowing truth and does truth exist? Folks, as we, we spend the next month or so looking at uh, science and the Bible, God and science, we, we have to have that foundation of what is truth and that it's objective and that it's, uh, it doesn't change. It does, it's not dependent upon what we believe. You have to have that as a foundation before we can even do science. Because if it's only true for me that gravity is such and such a way and not true for you, well, then how, how can we do any type of uh, testing, for example? And so it's important that we get down, you know, does truth exist? What is truth? We have to know these things. The second question that is dealt with in the book is does God exist? Again, this is from the seminar, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, in the book, um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist is on Amazon. Quick note here, the, the CIA training, the Cross-Examined Instructors Academy, is actually going on, I think, I believe the 9th through the 11th or 12th, here in Charlotte, North Carolina, at Southern Evangelical Seminary. 
And I was privileged to go through this, I think, in 2013. And it was life-transforming, friends. Uh, they bring in the best of the best. You're going to get guys like Greg Kogel, Brett Kunkel, Jay Warner Wallace, Frank Turek. I mean, just some of the brightest minds in Christianity. And they show they show about this, this seminar and exactly uh, the importance of learning how to defend the faith. Again, in my opinion, this is one of the best books uh, really on the topic. And so uh, it deals with the, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? Is the New Testament reliable? Here's the promo from Frank Turk, and then we will move right into Does God Exist? Hi, I'm Frank Turk. There are four major questions we cover in an I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist seminar. The first question is, does truth exist? This book, the Bible, can't be true if truth doesn't exist or if it's just true for you but not for me or all truth is relative. We're going to show in the first part of the seminar that truth does exist and you can know it. Because, you know, if truth doesn't exist, then this book, The God Delusion, can't be true either. But we're going to show that the book could be true. So could this be true? So we cover, does truth exist first? The second question is, does God exist? The Bible can't be true if God doesn't exist. If there is no God, you might as well throw this book away and every other book that talks about God. But we're going to show, through two scientific arguments and one philosophical argument, that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator out there, and we're not going to use the Bible to show you that evidence. We're just going to give you evidence and let you see where it leads. The third question is, are miracles possible? Again, this book can't be true if miracles are not possible. If miracles are not possible, throw this book away and every other book that talks about miracles. We're going to see that not only are miracles possible, but the greatest miracle of all has already occurred, and we have scientific evidence for it. We're going to show you that evidence, and then we're going to deal with David Hume's argument against miracles and show you that Hume was not only wrong, there is good evidence to believe in miracles. The fourth and final question is, is the New Testament true? The New Testament doesn't have a prayer. If truth doesn't exist, God doesn't exist, or miracles are not possible. But if truth exists, if God exists, if miracles are possible, then we can see if miracles actually occurred in the first century to authenticate Jesus and his apostles as truly being from God. We can look at the 27 handwritten Greek manuscripts we call the New Testament and see if they're historically reliable. If they are, and we will show you evidence that indeed they are, then we can say that the entire Old Testament is true as well. You'll see why when you come to the seminar, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Please come and bring your friends. See you there. Oh, I forgot one more thing. If I time the seminar exactly right, there'll be no time for your questions. No, no, no. There will be time for your questions, so please come with your questions. Whether you're a Christian, an atheist, or anyone in between, we're going to try and answer your questions, so there will be time for that. Hope to see you at the seminar. Thanks. All right, folks, if you are interested in booking Dr. Turek and uh, the cross-examined staff, please go to crossexamine.org. Please sure to, be sure to follow them on Facebook. They always have great events going on. Uh, Dr. Turk is a great speaker. Uh, this last weekend, we went to a event call, called the High School College uh, Prep, which is uh, basically where they go to different churches. This last one we went to was at Forest Hills. Had probably four to 500 people show up. I mean, it was packed. And uh, what they are doing is equipping the, co the high school students who are getting ready to go off to college. 
They had Jay Warner Wallace. They had Turek. They had uh, Mike Adams there. Excellent, excellent presentation. So if you're wanting to do something like that at your church, go to crossexamine.org or uh, message me at uh, Theology Matters on on our Facebook page, and uh, we'll be sure to get you in touch with that. All right, we're going to try this again. We're having a little more success here with our technology. Before we move into God Exists, I wanted to play this clip from Richard Dawkins uh, because I don't think people sometimes realize, unless you're really studying apologetics, the opposition that is out there. It's not just that there are the you know atheists that don't believe God exists. Uh, they really want to deconvert your children. They want to deconvert you. They want to uh, stomp it out of existence. And so I think we need to be aware of the aggressive atheism and why, as believers, we really do need to know what we believe and why we believe it. At this point, I need to acknowledge the remarkable taboo against speaking ill of religion. And I'm going to do so in the words of the late Douglas Adams, a dear friend who, if he never came to TED, certainly should have been invited. He was? He was, good. I thought he must have been. He begins this speech, which was uh, tape recorded in Cambridge shortly before he died. He begins by explaining how science works through the testing of hypotheses that are framed to be vulnerable to disproof. And then he goes on, I quote, Religion doesn't seem to work like that. It has certain ideas at the heart of it which we call sacred or holy. What it means is, here is an idea or a notion that you're not allowed to say anything bad about. You're just not. Why not? Because you're not. Why should it be that it's perfectly legitimate to support the Republicans or Democrats, this model of economics versus that versus that, Macintosh instead of Windows, but to have an opinion about how the universe began, about who created the universe, no, that's holy. So we are used to not challenging religious ideas. And it's very interesting how much of a furore Richard creates when he does it. He meant me, not that one. Everybody gets absolutely frantic about it because you're not allowed to say these things. Yet when you look at it rationally, there is no reason why those ideas shouldn't be as open to debate as any other, except that we've agreed somehow between us that they shouldn't be. That's the end of the quote from Douglas. In my view, not only is, is science corrosive to religion, religion is corrosive to science. It teaches people to be satisfied with trivial, supernatural, non-explanations and blinds them to the wonderful, real explanations that we have within our grasp. It teaches them to accept authority, revelation and faith instead of always insisting on evidence. Now there's a typical scientific journal, the Quarterly Review of Biology, and I'm going to put together, uh, as guest editor, Uh, a a special issue on the question, did an asteroid kill the dinosaurs? And the first paper is a standard scientific paper presenting evidence. Iridium layer at the KT boundary, potassium argon dated crater in Yucatan, indicate that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. Perfectly ordinary scientific paper. 
Now the next one. The President of the Royal Society has been vouchsafed a strong inner conviction that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> it has been privately revealed to Professor Huxdane that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> Professor Haldley was brought up to have total and unquestioning faith <laughs> that an asteroid <laughs> killed the dinosaurs. Professor Hawkins has promulgated an official dogma binding on all loyal Hawkinsians that an asteroid killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> That's inconceivable, of course. All right, so let's look at this. Some of the things he says is right, right? Um, there are Christians who sometimes teach their... Uh, their, their children, that they shouldn't ask questions, right? They're not allowed to ask. I've known kids, I've known parents that have done this, to where uh, the kid asks questions about, you know, science or the Bible, and they're just kind of told, you know, shut up, don't disrupt, uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of faith type of a thing. I grew up in a home where I had a lot of questions about whether the Bible was true, whether... God existed, whether there was good scientific evidence or philosophical evidence to believe these things. And I, I really never had my, my questions answered. And so I want to affirm with Richard Dawkins that we do need to, to, to be able to question, right? We need, uh, it's healthy to have these types of questions. Because after all, if what we believe isn't true, then we don't want to believe it. I mean, we don't want to be believing a lie right? Uh, but at the same time, I would suggest that uh, Dr. Dawkins also be willing to look at his worldview, question his beliefs as well, question his assumptions. For example, how does life come from non-living material? The scientific evidence certainly does not show that that is plausible at all, and if anything else, it's been demonstrated the opposite. And so sometimes people will say, when you bring this criticism up, oh, you're just believing in the God of the gaps. Well, no. Um, I think the, 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 in Darwin's day, the cell was just looked at as a little blob of protoplasm. But as the scientific evidence has gotten better, as the instruments have gotten better, what we've seen is within the cell, for example, there are volumes and volumes and volumes of information within one cell written down exactly. Uh, using the, the ATC and G code. And so it's not that um, I don't know how it happens or I can't, you know, it's not a God of the gaps. It's because we do know the complexity, uh, the information that is in the cell. So, uh, you know, I would ask, you know, the naturalist, how do you explain the universe coming into existence from nothing and by nothing? I mean, the evidence from cosmology demonstrates the universe came into existence. So some will try and go back and argue and say, well, it's eternal or there's a multiverse or the universe is cyclical. All those models, are just, they're fatally flawed, right? So Dawkins needs to question some of the materialist worldview as well. And then he talks again about uh, appealing to convictions instead of the evidence. Well, we agree. 
I would certainly agree. I don't believe God exists simply because I, you know, I feel Jesus in my heart. I think God exists because it, it best explains reality. It best explains the origin of life, the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, consciousness, morality, uh, science itself. As Dr. Turk has pointed out in his new book, uh, Stealing from God, he used the acronym CRIMES, causality, reason, information, morality, and evil, even evil. Uh, is something that the atheist has to borrow or steal from the Christian worldview. See, all those things Dawkins just assumes is built into the nationalistic worldview, and he doesn't even pretend to give an account for those things. And a lot of atheists will say, well, you know, just because we don't know yet doesn't mean down the road we won't. Well, you know, Christians don't get that same pass. If we say, well, you know, we're, we're working on the problem of evil, and someday we may get it figured out. Well, no, you get laughed off the stage. Well, it's the same thing. You don't just get to assume causality, reason, information, morality, and evil are somehow just built into the atheistic worldview without even being able to give an account for that. So let's move on to the second part in the section of this um, talk here. I'm going off of their, the PowerPoints that I got in the CIA room. So this section is, does God exist? And I'll be presenting this actually at a few different churches. Uh, so if, if you're in the Rock Hill or the Carolina area and you want this presentation at your church and you guys maybe can't afford Frank, uh, you know, I'm a cheap, cheap substitute. So let's look at this. Does God exist? Again, as I said earlier, this question is really important. It's of, it's of the highest importance. If God does exist, then we have to look at things such as, is there meaning and purpose to life? Uh, is there an afterlife? Is there someone we have to be accountable to? Did this God reach out to us in Scripture and try and talk to us? What does nature itself tell us about God? As you guys heard Dr. Davis speaking earlier, brilliant, brilliant lady who's, uh, you know, several college degrees and said that the, the natural revelation or general revelation has always convinced her God exists. Well, that's exactly what we see in Romans 1, 118 through 26, that we know God exists because of the creation. Painting demands a painter. Design demands a designer. A book requires an author. It's the same kind of thing. And so whether God exists is of the utmost importance. So what we're going to be looking at here is we'll contrast basically the three uh, major worldviews when it comes to the existence. You have uh, theism, pantheism, and atheism. So theism would include Judaism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And this is the view that God is, again, this is monotheism, right? So one God in existence. Now, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all argue that God is both uh, transcendent and yet imminent. And so what we mean by transcendent is uh, God is above and beyond his creation. He's not trapped inside the box, so to speak. He's outside of the box. But yet, he still is different from deism because he works miracles. He's involved. He's upholding the universe even now. 
And so this is the view that God made it all, and he is uh, currently involved in the universe. The second view is pantheism, and this is the view that uh, God is the universe and the universe is God. And we see uh, Zen Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, uh, all those type of beliefs. I believe uh, Oprah would buy into that second that second uh, category there. So you have theism and you have pantheism. One says that God is above and beyond the universe. The other one would say that God is in the universe and we are part of God. Philosophical view known as monism. Third view is religious humanism. Religious humanism or atheism. And this is that no God exists at all. Right? As Carl Sagan says, the universe is all there is, was, or ever will be. We are simply matter in motion. And uh, it's a reductionist view. Everything can be reduced down to to, chemi- to chemistry, basically. And that's really major, major problems with atheism, as we'll look at. How do you account for free will in the atheistic universe? Um, you know, if, if all your brain is, is the laws of physics and chemistry, then how in the world can you trust your thoughts? How can you be uh, held, how can someone be held accountable for doing evil? Well, you know, there's, uh, as Dr. Kirk says, chemicals don't reason, they just react. If I have a can of Dr. Pepper and a can of Mountain Dew and I, I shake, shake them both up and open them up, what one's right? Well, you're saying, well, what do you mean what one's right? Well, that's exactly, because it's just chemistry. They're just fizzing. They're just doing what chemicals and laws of physics do. And so we'll look at some of the major problems with that. Let's look at some of the great, uh, look at three great arguments for the existence of God. Now, we say this, there's a whole lot more that could be given and a whole lot more that could be said. I think it is the Catholic philosopher, Dr. Peter Kreeft, has uh, in a section on Handbook of Christian Apologetics over 20 arguments for the existence of God. So we're just looking at three today. Uh, we're going to look at cosmological arguments. This is dealing with the beginning, right? How do we how how do we get here? What is the origin? Secondly, we'll look at design. We'll look at the design arguments, the teleological arguments. Sometimes it's called, and again, dealing with uh, the design, the purpose. Mainly with with the design argument, you're looking at two main features: cosmology, or, or two disciplines, cosmology and biology. Uh, Within cosmology, what we see is uh, incredible fine-tuning. And again, fine-tuning is something all people, all scientists, whether atheists or Christian, we all agree with that. Uh, The question is, how does it get fine-tuned, right? So that's one section of fine-tuning argument. The the second issue is dealing with uh, biology. And so, for example, in the late 90s, you see uh, guys like Philip Johnson, who was a lawyer, and uh, did the book um, Debating, uh, was it Debating Darwin, Debating Darwinism, uh, did Darwin on Trial, um, Reason in the Balance, just a bunch of great books. And from that came guys like Michael Behe, who's a biochemist, and wrote the book Darwin's Black Box, which is a wonderful book 
and coined the phrase irreducible complexity. And in there, he looks at several different features in biology at the molecular level uh, where he argues that uh, basically natural selection mutations cannot account uh, for some of these features as um, they, they have to be there kind of right there uh, from the start. Uh, natural selection would weed a lot of those the, the stuff out. And so irreducible complexity is, a, is another argument for it. Uh, information theory, there's, there's a lot of different things. So we'll look at that as well if we have time. Thirdly, the argument from morality or the moral argument. A lot of people think that the existence of evil disproves the existence of God. They think, oh, if evil exists, that disproves God. God cannot exist if evil exists. But, of course, the, the question would be, uh, if God does not exist, what is evil? What in the world is evil if God does not exist? See, we're using a standard of what we think evil is in order to judge the Christian worldview. And uh, it just doesn't work, folks. You have to have a standard. If I say Mother Teresa good and Hitler is bad, standard to which I am judging them by. And so let's look a little bit here at the cosmological arguments. Now, again, as I stated a little bit earlier, Christians will disagree on the age of the earth. And sometimes, folks, this is a very... Very, very contentious debate. Now, just for clarity on this, I am a young earth creationist. I believe God created the universe six to 10,000 years ago. I am firmly convinced of this. I think the Bible teaches it. I think the scientific evidence is consistent with it. I think there's a lot of assumptions that go into um, the Big Bang, etc. But this is what I'm saying. I do not divide with other Christians over this. I, I am a chapter director for Ratio Christi at Winthrop University, okay? And what I do is I'm meeting with students and with faculty, etc. through the week. We, we, we're doing evangelism. Last semester, we went through the book um, On Guard, which is a book by William Lane Craig, one of the top Christian apologists and philosophers, when I'm going through this, when I'm, when I'm having a discussion with an atheist, I do not want to get bogged down in a debate on the age of the earth because that is an issue that Christians themselves will disagree upon. So I don't want to get bogged down in that debate. When you saw the, the debate between Ken Ham and Bill Nye, it was a great opportunity blown in my mind because they end up spending the whole time debating on the age of the earth. And the, the, the fact of the matter is Christians do disagree on that. So I think the bigger question should be, does God exist, right? Whether or not uh, it's 6,000 years ago or billions of years ago and dealing with the issue of inerrancy, uh, that, that's an issue. That, that is definitely a topic that needs to be discussed it's a debate that needs to be had, but it should happen among the Christians, right? So I have no problem when I'm discussing this topic with an atheist. I have no problem whatsoever granting them for the sake of the argument Big Bang cosmology. Universe, 13.7 billion years old. Uh, 
Earth, 4.6 billion. First life, 3.8. That's fine. I'll grant that for the sake of the argument. Let's first argue that God exists, and then we can get to the when, right? So for the sake of argument, I will grant them the Big Bang. Now, what we see is with the Big Bang is, and by the way, I would say this, certain features of Big Bang cosmology are not inconsistent with the young earth creationist model. The young earth Christians believe the universe began to exist, the universe is expanding, second law of thermodynamics, etc. So there's several things that we can agree on. Uh, the timing is just one of the things. And of course, we would say theologically, uh, there are differences in the accounts given. <clears throat> but William Lane Craig, uh, as I mentioned earlier, wrote the book On Guard, in the late 70s revived an argument called the Kalam cosmological argument. And what this argument, it's basically two premises and a conclusion. And uh, it's really turned out to be one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God. And he uses it in, in almost all of his debates. Uh, and the argument goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause, premise one. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Conclusion, therefore, the universe had a cause. So let me give that to you uh, one more time. Premise one, whatever begins to exist as a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. Conclusion three, therefore, the universe had a cause. And this is important uh, because the features, what we would say is the cause of the universe, when we really look, strip it down and really get into the nitty-gritty, would have all the signposts of what we would call God. See, if space, time, and matter comes into existence, then whatever the cause is cannot be, space, cannot be in space, time, or made of material because those features of the universe did not exist. Now, philosophers will talk about two different types of causes, agent, agent, or, or agent or event, event causation, right? Event, event causation is kind of like the dominance. One knocks down the other, one event causes the other, after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And it can be tracked, you know, each, each cause that happens can go back and trace to a different event. Agent causation says something outside the system caused it. So you have agent causation and event-event causation. With a Big Bang, what you have is, demonstrates agent causation because there was no space. There was no time. There was no matter. There was no event prior to the Big Bang. And so what that would demonstrate is, before space, before time, before matter, whatever brought the universe into existence has to be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. Now, if you don't have uh, Dr. Doug Grotice's book, Christian Apologetics, let me grab this real quickly because he has a, a section on this when talking about the Kalam. I found it to be extremely helpful. And what he talks about is some of the, the, the features of the God of the Kalam. Very interesting. Let me see if I can if we can pull that up here. But again, I would just say that don't get bogged down in the debate on the age of the earth, because if you do that, um, you know, sometimes it can just, 
it can it can it can bog you down. It can get you off off track. All right, let me see here. I'm gonna sorry for the for the dead air here. I'm trying to find a particular section talking about the Kalam cosmological argument. All right, here we go. And again, that is whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. So let's see. And if yeah, again, folks, if you don't have uh, Dr. Greer Tyson's book, you really need to get it. Christian Apologetics. It's a ma- it's a, a magnum opus, so to speak, on Christian apologetics. I mean, it's it's really um, it, it's incredible. It's uh, over. Let me see here. It's almost 800 pages, and uh, it's absolutely incredible. One of the things that he talks about this on page 235. Uh, so what we have again with the with the Kalam, just before we jump into that, what you see because of the features of the universe that uh, God is immaterial, spaceless, and timeless. So the question would be then, what about is this God personal? How do we get to a personal God uh, from the Kalam? And so let me start on page. 235 here it says but if there's a single cause of the universe it is a personal being such as the god of abraham isaac and jacob the cause must be either personal or impersonal since these categories exhaust the possibilities uh, an impersonal cause whatever else it may be would certainly not be the god of the bible so he's saying based on the law of non-contradiction either god is personal or he is not personal if the cause of the universe were an impersonal principle that is merely a set of necessary and sufficient conditions for creation, it could not choose to create but would automatically actualize the universe and could not exist without its effect. If so, the universe would be eternal since the cause and the effect would coexist. And uh, Dr. Craig explains it with this analogy, and Dr. Craig is the one who's really revived uh, the Coulomb cosmological argument. He says, let's say the cause of water's freezing is sub-zero temperatures. Whenever the temperature falls below zero degrees centigrade, the water freezes. Once that cause is given, the effect must follow. And if the cause exists from eternity, the effect must also exist from eternity. If the temperature were to remain below zero degree from eternity, then any water around would be frozen from eternity. So this seems to imply that if the cause of the universe existed eternally, the universe would also have existed eternally, and we know this to be false. Because on the face, since the universe is not eternal, the cause of the universe is not uh, impersonal, but rather personal. Someone might argue that abstract objects or entities, also called uh, abstracta, existed before the advent of the universe, that they are what created the universe. An abstract object or entity is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial, as are mathematical objects such as numbers, sets, and geometrical figures, uh, propositions, properties, and relations. However, while abstract objects are not part of the space-time material universe, it could not exist without it, 
they are also a-causal since they are not agents. Therefore, they cannot bring about the creation of the universe. Excellent book by Doug Grotice, Christian Apologetics. Uh, again, he's got a great section in there as to why the Kalam actually points to a personal uh, personal being, personal God that exists. So let's look at this. Um, he says, uh, Stephen Hawking says, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So that, again, this is Stephen Hawking. He wrote the book, The Grand Design. He's written several books. Looked at as one of the most brilliant uh, men alive. I mean, he, he really is. Uh, of course, in this book, The Grand Design, he really argues that if God exists, we really don't need him. And so that's part of the problem. Alexander Lincoln says, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is now no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, notice the language in there. Face the problem of a cosmic beginning. And the question would be, of course, why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem if you're committed to, uh, to naturalism. Right problem then, because uh, well the implications you don't like the implications of that. Well, I, I would just say, folks, that uh, are we going to what the scientific? Are we going to be uh, objective? Are we going to go where the evidence leads, or are we just going to reject certain conclusions or certain certain evidence because we don't like the conclusion? See, this idea that scientists uh, are many times just uh, unbiased, neutral, just like, you know, like Spock or something out of Star Trek, just following the evidence where it leads, not so. Uh, and Grotice talks about this in, in his book as well, that uh, when the evidence for the Big Bang came out, there's a lot of protest about that because a lot of people don't like the implications. If there was a beginning, then that must mean there is a beginner, and so you have two of the top atheists, cosmologists, I'm not sure about the Lincoln, I know it's Hawking, uh, saying that the universe had a beginning. And so there's, there's a lot of scientific evidence that the universe did begin to exist. Um, they give the acronym SPURGE, Second Law of Thermodynamics, uh, Expanding Universe, Radiation Echo, Great Galaxy Seeds, and Einstein's Theory of uh, general relativity. We'll look at a couple here because we're just about out of time. But second law of thermodynamics. Um, think about this. This is kind of as an example. Uh, one of the one of the definitions they give is that the universe is running down uh, of of usable energy. So think about this. It's nighttime. You're a little boy again. You're out there with your buddies and you're uh, sleeping in the tent. And your dad gives you a couple flashlights, and of course, like all dads, tells you not to wear out the batteries. Don't leave it on. You wear out the batteries. And, uh, you know, as you do, you get out there with your friend and scared of the dark, and you leave the battery on, and next thing you know, you wake up in the morning, and the flashlight is dead. And dad isn't too happy because you just wasted $6 of batteries. But what has happened to this, folks? The energy ran out. Unless you uh, you know, have the, the kind of batteries that you can plug in and recharge, if you don't have an outside source 
going into the battery, which you have what you'd have there is a closed system. Nothing else going into it, nothing else adding it. But what happens is if you do that, it's going to eventually die unless you get energy from somewhere else, a battery charger, for example. Same thing with your phone. Right? How many times have you been desperately needing to make a phone call only to find out your phone just died? And you have to plug it in, right? It just doesn't stay on forever. You know, if a cell phone company can come up with batteries like that, then uh, then definitely they will make some money. Um, I give the example often of, uh, you know, imagine I have you over. It's Christmas time. I have you over for some hot cocoa. You come in the house. We sit down at the table, and you touch the cocoa. And... Uh, it's not. Uh, it's room temperature. It's not hot. It's room temperature. And I say, well, how long has that cocoa been sitting there? And you say, well, uh, I don't know. You know, it could be ten minutes. Um, could be. Could be three days, right? You don't know because the temperature is room temperature, right? If you did the same experiment and then you touched the cocoa and it was hot or lukewarm, you would know that 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 thing hasn't been sitting there for more than 15 or, or 20 minutes without being either reheated or just poured or whatever. But you'd know that it hadn't been sitting there for a week. Well, this is very analogous to the universe, right? Because the universe is still hot. We still have stars. We still have our sun. We still have galaxies. See, if the universe has infinitely old, the universe or the, the energy would have run out. And that's why cosmologists will tell you that Given enough time, what we'll experience is what they call the heat death of the universe, where the big freeze, and this is where all all energy uh, basically leaves. It's done because uh, it winds down. So the fact that the universe is still hot, the fact that we still have stars, galaxies, etc., uh, is very good evidence that the universe is not eternally old. And again. This is not a bunch of Christians that found the evidence, this evidence out, right? Um, this is just standard Big Bang cosmology. The universe is also expanding, right? We know that the universe is is expanding. And they know this because they can look it through the telescopes and see what you can do is you can split up the light and you can see on one end you have the red shift, on another end you have a blue shift, uh, because, you know, light uh, t- uh, ha- it makes up several different colors of a spectrum. And what they know is when they get the red end of the spectrum, that that means the universe is expanding. On the blue end of the spectrum, it would mean that the universe is actually shrinking or collapsing. But and the fact that the universe is expanding, think about this. Think, think if you came in and you're watching uh, kind of a real or a movie of this, of the universe. Um, think about it almost as a balloon. As you blow into the balloon, you know, the universe starts to expand. But if you rewind the reel back, right, you watch the tape back, it goes down, down, down. Well, eventually you get to a point of nothing, right? You can't just um, shrink forever. Well, if the universe is expanding, and we know that it is, based on redshift and some other things, uh, then we know that... It can't be of couldn't be of expanded forever, right? And so, a typical Big Bang cosmology would say we came from a singularity, and then from that, that's where kind of what uh, what happened with the universe. Says so if time were 
reversed, uh, if Edwin Hubble's time were reversed, the universe would collapse back into itself from nothing. Into nothing, I should say. So we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll kind of end that there. Uh, what we see, though, is, again, good good evidence for the origin of the universe. And uh, get that book. Get the book, uh, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. be well worth your time. Uh, excellent book. And uh, would really help to uh, help equip you to be able to deal with a lot of the questions that come up. Uh, because you're going to face them. You're, you're going to face them. So next week what we're going to look at is we're going to go over uh, refuting evolution with Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. See if I can pull up some of the chapters there that we're going to be we're going to be looking at. Again, this book was the top-selling creationist book of all time. Over over half a million copies sold. So we'll be looking at uh, actually going to be looking at chapter one and two. First uh, first chapter we're going to be looking at is uh, facts and bias. Again, this idea that uh, you know all scientists are neutral and they have no acts or bias or anything like this. Uh, this is simply not true. Chapter 2 will be going over variation and natural selection versus evolution. So a lot of people think, they, they have this idea that uh, Christians reject natural selection. And it's, it really couldn't be further from the truth. What he demonstrates in the book is really natural selection was a principle that creationists discovered first. Uh, you can look at the readings of uh, Edward Blythe and see that natural selection <coughs> is not, not anything that Christians should reject. Uh, it is <coughs> really kind of God's quality control, so to speak, to keep the species strong. Chapter 3, we'll look at uh, the links are missing. The links are missing. We'll look at uh, some of the major gaps and the major problems with the missing links. Chapter 4, we'll look at bird evolution. We constantly hear that uh, dinosaurs evolved into birds. Well, what's the evidence for that? I don't think there's much good evidence at all. I mean, he really does a great job in the book uh, highlighting a lot of problems. Five, we'll look at whale evolution. Whale evolution is something that is often given as an evidence for God's existence, or I'm sorry, for evolution. And again, I think when we strip down to what is really there as far as fossil evidence and not just the, the pretty pictures and the artist's rendition, it's, it's shocking, folks. It's absolutely shocking. So we'll, we'll spend time on whale evolution. Uh, we're also going to look at humans. Um, what are what are australopithecines? Uh, what are hominids? Do we do we actually do we cavemen? Um, we'll look at astronomy, and we'll get into a little bit about the age of the Earth on this because we're going to have you know people doing both sides, and uh, you know we'll see what the different Christians' view is as well as chapter uh, eight on the age of the Earth. Um, let's let's look at this too. I want to do also be looking at um, Refuting Evolution uh, 2, which is the second book. Again, this is a response to, to PBS and uh, Scientific American, which wrote an article that had came out 
uh, I believe it was 20 ways or 25 ways or something to that effect uh, to respond to creationist nonsense. And so between that and he's, he's also answering uh, PBS, which had done a series called uh, Evolution, seven-part series in that. And so Dr. Sarfati really goes deep uh, into that. Chapter one, we'll look at uh, creationism is religion, not science. We hear that ad nauseum. Chapter two, evolution is compatible with Christian religion. We need to look at that. We need to see, is evolution compatible with the Christian religion? Now, I would say this. Evolution does not disprove the existence of God. Now, I, I'm not an evolutionist. As I said earlier, I'm young with creationism. Uh, but this idea that somehow evolution disproves the existence of God is ridiculous because it, evolution does not answer where does space, time, and matter come from. Um, I think Craig, when he's debating um, Frank Zindler, actually uses the argument of fine-tuning. It says, because uh, Zindler was a biologist, and so he kept trying to uh, force Craig into um, dealing with evolution. And Craig's not a biologist, and he's smart, so he's not going to sit and try and debate biology with a guy who's got a doctorate in biology. But what he does is he argues that because of the fine-tuning of the universe, even if biological evolution were true, that would be an argument for God's existence because of the improbability of having a, a habitable planet or life without, without a, a designer because of the parameters of fine-tuning. So I'll look into that. Uh, I definitely think, uh, biblically speaking, evolution in the Bible would definitely uh, have some serious problems. Uh, you would have to give up inerrancy uh, in my view. Um, natural selection, mutations, common design, it's, uh, homology, those kind of things. We'll be looking at all that, folks. So uh, thanks again for, for joining us tonight. It's been kind of a uh, discombobulated series as uh, we had some miscommunication there with our guest, and he wasn't able to show. That's okay. We'll, we'll get him back on. But um, next week, again, we'll be here with Dr. Jonathan Sarfati from Creation Ministries International. Um, August 20th, big show, folks. We'll have Dr. Ken Samples from Reasons to Believe. He's written the books uh, Reasonable uh, – or Without a Doubt, I'm sorry. He's written Without a Doubt. Seven Truths That Changed the World in a World of Difference. His stuff is, is, is wonderful. So we'll look at how philosophy and science interact. Then we will have Jay Warner Wallace on, uh, who just wrote the book uh, God's Crime Scene. It's very well known on Cold Case Christianity. Wonderful book. Uh, so I, I was able to get a copy of God's Crime Scene. Been going through that. Uh, then come August 27th, that will close out our month of God and Science, and we will be talking with Casey Luskin from the Discovery Institute and Dr. Stephen Meyer. Uh, and uh, tell you, this is such an honor for me to be able to interview these guys. Uh, we're going to be going over Dr. Meyer and Luskin's and a few other people contributed to the book, Debating Darwin's Doubt. And in this book, they go head-to-head -head with the top critics of Darwin's Doubt. And they really uh, demonstrate that it is solid, sound science and that uh, intelligent design isn't going away, folks. 
if not. So join us in the following weeks to come. We appreciate everybody listening and uh, joining us. And until next time, uh, we pray you guys have a wonderful day. God bless. Thank you.